Romans chapter number 13, and I'd like to just read a few verses to you this evening and preach to you for a little while about what Paul said about the day that we live in. Romans chapter number 13. Let's begin reading at verse number 11. The Word of God says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife, and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You for the privilege it is to be in Your house. We thank You for the Holy Ghost and the precious Word of God. Lord, we know You've given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. There's no reason if we have a heart to that we can't meet with You this evening. So, Father, help us now to be surrendered to the preaching of Your Word and to the examination of your spirit, Lord, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. We do ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we read in Romans chapter number 13, the 13th chapter of the book of Romans deals much with the relationship that you and I have with civil authority and with government. In fact, if you read the first few verses of chapter number 13, you'll see sort of how Christians are supposed to behave in light of uh, civil disorder, so to speak. But, you know, I can't help but be struck by how similar the days of Paul and our days are in some ways. And if anything, I would say this, that Paul and the believers at this time were living in a more difficult situation than you and I are. We may be a little more keenly aware of how bad things are, but that don't mean we've got them worse than they had it. We talk about living under a tyrannical government, and I certainly think our government's out of control, don't you? But it's nowhere near as tyrannical as the Roman government was. We talk about living under persecution, and there's no question that Christians have become the target of today's culture war. Don't you believe that? But we face nowhere near the persecution that they faced. And there's no question that as a believer, when you take a stand for Jesus Christ, you face ridicule, and it even could keep you from advancing in the workplace. It could sever friendships and relationships that you have, but it's nowhere near the cost that so many believers paid at this time that were part of the New Testament church. And so the exhortation that Paul gives in the 13th chapter of Romans, I believe, is keenly attuned to our day. I believe it worked then, and I believe it works now. Amen? I believe it was good then, I believe it's good now. And I believe that we, in being in a similar situation, can gain much comfort from this passage. And I want you to notice three quick words that are given here, and then I'll pray and close. I want you to notice that Paul, first off, gives us a word about time. As you read these verses, you cannot help but be struck by the mention of the time that Paul was living in. And I believe the time that you and I are living in. You know, the wonderful thing about this book is it's somehow wonderfully timely and timeless at the same time. And what was true in Paul's day is still certainly true in our day. You know, I'm a dispensationalist. I, I believe in dispensations in the Word of God. 
And I'd understand that there may be almost 2,000 years separating us and the writings of the Apostle Paul, but I understand that we still live under the same dispensation in the same time period, uh, in the same ways that God deals with man. And I understand even in a particular way that the writings of Paul apply to your life and mine. And as we read this, Paul gives us three truths concerning time. Now, it's interesting that he begins by saying knowing the time. You know, he just takes for granted that you and I were aware of the time that we're living in. And as believers, we talk often about it. In fact, we, we mention it unless just our memory fails us and shame on us if it does. We mention it at every service that the Lord is coming back soon. We definitely believe that the Lord could return at any moment. His return is imminent. And when you look around at the world that we live in, it certainly seems as though things are trending and uh, bending towards a time, even just at any moment, that the Lord could come back. We know what time it is. Paul says, listen, you know what time it is. But let me say this, that I believe one of the great distinctions, me and my wife were talking about it, there are two great distinctions between the New Testament church and the church of today. Two things that weaken and cripple us immeasurably. One is this, that we've cheapened prayer. Prayer has just become a word that we use, like condolences and well wishes. And prayer has become sometimes merely a duty and not a desire. It has become merely something that we uh, try to get out of the way, an obstacle rather than a weapon in our warfare. Prayer has been cheapened. But then the second thing is this. We don't live with a real effectual experiential knowledge of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're aware that the New Testament church and the apostles, I mean, they expect Him to come at any moment. Now, we might sit there and say, well, that's silly. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> is that we might say that's silly. I, I tell you the truth right now, uh, more sure than the sun rising tomorrow, more sure uh, than the oceans continuing to flow, more sure than the wind continuing to blow, is that Jesus could come back at any moment. See, they knew what time it was. And you and I, we have the same road map, we have the same compass, we have the same chart right in front of us, and we can know what time it is. And Paul uses three phrases to explain this time. Notice, first off, he says it is high time to awake out of sleep. I've always been fascinated by the usage of that phrase in Romans chapter 13. And I'll tell you why. Now, this is going to be silly and carnal, but I think think it'll help you to understand, because you're silly and carnal like me. I'll tell you what I think of. For some reason, I think of the old dusty western, and I think of... High noon. Anybody else? Anybody carnal like me? I think of high noon. What Paul is really saying here when he says it's high time to awake, that phrase has the idea of it being the proper time. In other words, it, 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 it has reached the scheduled moment for you and I to awake. Can I put it in language that might ring a little bit more relevant to you and I? The alarm clock has gone off. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes, you know, you roll over and uh, you'll wake up. Any of you cursed with the with waking up about two minutes before the alarm goes off? That ever happened to you? And you wake up and you roll over and you look, look at that clock and you think to yourself, what? It's time to wake up. It's high time. It's the proper time. It's the appointed time for me to wake up. Paul says this. Listen, this Bible is like an alarm clock and she's ringing. The Bible teaches us that now is the time for us to be waking up and serving God. And I began to think of what Paul may have meant by that. You know, Paul was the very one that God used to tell us that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let me tell you something. There's no excuses for you and I not serving God. None whatsoever. We have a completed Bible, 
We have the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. We have a sin-sick world, and we complain about how dark it is, but the truth is the darker it gets, the easier it is for the light to shine. We live in a day of technological advances that would dazzle uh, the, the archaic and ancient mind. I mean, we live in a time where we can pick up a little box that we carry around in our pockets and push it a few times and talk to someone all the way across the world. We live in a time where mass production and media and printing is more easy than it's ever been. Are you aware that if you go backwards about 600 years in human history, books had to be written by hand and scribed out by hand? We live in a day where you can just push a few buttons and it rolls out of your desktop computer. I'm saying this... That there's nothing else to wait on. We've got everything we need. There's nothing else to wait. I mean, what are we waiting on to serve God? The truth is there are not things culturally that we are waiting on to serve God, but oftentimes there are things we are waiting on personally to serve God. And we say to ourselves, when this changes in my life or when that changes in my life, maybe when I get a little more money or when I get over this difficult period of my life or maybe when this changes, but let me tell you something, right now is the only time that we're promised. Right now. Uh, tomorrow, if the Lord will help me too, I, I'm supposed to... I don't know why folks have me come preach place, but occasionally they do. And uh, I'm going to go preach at a, at a veterinary fellowship. And I was telling Brandon, he said, why? I said, you didn't know I was a veterinarian? And he, looked, and he believed me for a second. He looked at me, you know. But uh, speaking to a bunch of, you know, 20-something college students, you know, got the, got the world by the tail. And so often it's easy to always assume that there will be time down the road to do it. Let me tell you something. No man is promised tomorrow. Your life is a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. The funeral that I did last week for a 24-year-old young man, I told the family, I said, this is a funeral I never planned on preaching. I did not plan on standing here. I've told you before, I mean scores of times, the first funeral I preached was just of a 75-day-old infant. God may let you live to be full of days and of good years, but the truth is none of us are promised. I'm saying now's the proper time to serve God. If you're going to do it, you better do it now because Jesus is coming soon and you're not promised tomorrow. There's nothing else that you need. You've got a Bible. You've got the Spirit of God. You've got a world full of sinners that need to hear Christ's salvation. Now's the time. Man, it's the proper time. I believe it's the proper time, but then I believe Paul teaches us that it's a passing time. He says the time is proper, but the time is passing. He says, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Oh, what a simple formula, but oh, how profound. What he's saying is essentially this. Can I, can I just put it how I've said it to you a few times? He's saying this. We're one day closer to Jesus coming. And we are. On this Sunday, we're one day closer to Jesus coming. If the Lord tarries His coming till tomorrow, we'll be a day nearer then. And same thing could be said of Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Our salvation right now is nearer than when we believe. You know, it's always within human nature. When, when folks get born again, God don't save a person, and, they, and, and people don't get born again backslid. Somebody say amen to that. You've got to learn backslidenness. When you're born again, I mean, you don't, that, that little baby, the first thing that that baby, uh, when it comes out of the womb, they, they smack it and it cries and it hollers and it shouts. And that baby is alive and it wants to live life. And as it continues on, if it's healthy, it just gets more awake and more excited. Trust me, amen. More awake and more excited and more wound up. That's normal. But you see, we get to be adults and we start to grow lazy. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, I tell you, it don't make no sense. I don't understand why they give you nap time when you're five years old and don't want it. But then when you're 25, 35, 45, 55, nobody lets you take a nap. Amen? just don't make no sense. That's why people say it's a shame that uh, youth is wasted on the young, you know? 
when a person is born again, they're not born again backslid. They have to learn that. And it's interesting that it is the natural progression of human nature to backslide. And can I just put it this way? To cool off in their relationship with the Lord. Oftentimes we say things like this, I just need a period to step away. I just need a time to relax. I'm just stepping out of the limelight. What does the Bible say about that? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says this, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. We look around at a church that is cooling off when the Lord says we ought to be heating up. We look at a church that is toning down when it ought to be turning things up. We look at a church that is backing off when it ought to be charging forward. Oftentimes, it's funny, you know, and I'm not, I, I promise, I'm not fussing at you. I'm, I promise. It, shake your head if you know I'm not fussing at you. I need to know that before I say what I'm about to say. It's funny, you know, as, as you deal with old people when you pastor, and I don't know why, that's just the way it is. And you, you meet old people sometimes. In fact, I met, uh, I met an older couple today that I used to go to church with. They was at the restaurant. Not Mike and Brenda. <laughs> they, they were at the restaurant too, but they're not old. But I, I, I met an older couple at the restaurant that I used to go to church with. And th- yeah, you're welcome. And uh, I was talking to them, and they were talking about different things. And, and the wife made this statement. I asked her, I said, how's things going at church and everything? She said, oh, okay. She said, you know, I can't get out anymore like I used to. And I know I'm a cynic, and I know I'm smart aleck, but everything within me wanted to say, well, you sure made it to the Cheddars, all right. Listen now, I, I mean, I meet little old ladies all the time that they're too sick to get out of the house, but they can make it down to the hairdresser. And I meet old men all the time, they're too sick to make it to church, but they can make it to the fishing bank, or they can make it to the golf course. I'm saying this, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. As you get older in life, I understand, you know, the body breaks down. I understand you may not be able to go run a 5K for Jesus. I get that. But let me tell you something. As you get older, you ought not get less dedicated. You ought to get more dedicated. And that's true not just of older people, but of younger people. We ought not be declining. We ought to be progressing in our walk with the Lord because time's passing. We're one day nearer to Jesus coming back. It ought to be so much the more as you see the day approaching. Paul says that the time is proper and the time is passing, but I believe he shows to us that the time is pivotal. He says this, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this verse. Can I give you a literal, scriptural, and dispensational interpretation of it? What Paul is saying is this, there's nothing left on God's prophetic calendar. I understand. Listen, I know. If you want to go home tonight, look at the blood moon, God bless you. That's fine. You're welcome to do that. But I'm telling you that the next thing on God's calendar is Jesus coming back. That's the next thing. If you want to follow every hiccup that happens with Israel, I believe, I believe there is some wisdom. I understand they're God's earthly people. And I understand that there, though there may not be signs of Jesus coming, there certainly are symptoms of Jesus coming. I, I'm aware of that. But let me just serve notice on you. Let me remind you that the next thing to happen is the rapture of the church and the catching away of the bride. That's the next thing to happen. We talk all the time about the 11th hour. We say it's almost midnight. Can I just say it's not almost midnight, it's almost daylight. The night's far spent. 
the next thing on the calendar is for Jesus to come back. Oh, what a joy! Oh, what an excitement! Oh, what a thrill that you and I could be living to see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could be in that generation. You and I, in a moment, we could be a part of that group, of that body, of that people. Oh, what a pivotal time we're living in, man. I mean, listen, we're, we're, living, at, we're living as the clock is, is winding down. We're living as the... Di- Do you understand? Oh, my. I don't, listen, I don't know if you're excited, but it gets me a little excited to think that we might be on the cusp of the kingdom. My, what a day we live in. So it's a day we ought to be serving God. Today we ought to be serving God. We, I, I know people talk about that last one will be saved, and that's what the Lord's waiting on, and, and I'm not going to fuss or argue about that. But let me just say this, that Jesus could come at any moment. The time is changing, so we better try to win our loved ones to Christ because it is a pivotal time that you and I are living in. We see a word about time in the first few verses. But then we see a word about warfare. Now, listen, the preacher professors, they'd fuss because I'm not alliterated, right? But I chose that word on purpose because I believe it conveys what Paul's trying to convey. He says we're living in a time when the night is far spent, the day is at hand. We're living in exciting times. So what are we to do? Verse number 12. He says, let us therefore. Now, we know what that word therefore means. It means predicated upon and built upon the prior statement. Because of all these things and in light of all these things, let us therefore what? And he tells us three things. He says, first off, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. The picture that Paul is giving us is that of an army that is sleeping. And when they wake up, they must cast off their bedclothes and put on their armor. And he's going to say a word about it here in a moment. But what he's saying is this. There's a clothing or there is a, an appearance or there is a behavior that belongs to the darkness. But Paul's already told us that you and I, we're not of the night. We're not of the darkness. We're children of the light. And he's saying, as such, we ought to live in that way. Let me say that you and I, we ought to be different from the world. We spend a lot of time arguing particulars with people that don't believe that principle. Let me say that again. We spend a lot of time arguing the particulars of that truth with people that don't believe in the principle. If you believe at your very core that as a believer, you're called to be different from this world, then nobody's going to have to come along and smack your wrist to get you to live in a different way. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not for standards. Oh, I'm for standards. I believe we ought to live according to standards. I, I believe that it's of the Lord that we have standards. But standards are not birthed out of discipline. Standards are not they're birthed out of a love for Jesus Christ and a keen awareness of the impact we can have on the world around us. If we don't believe in that principle... We're not, listen, I, I grew up in Christian school, I, and I've, I've told you that before, and Christian school kids are rotten, man. When I was in Christian school, they, the rule was you had to tuck your shirt in. Now, to a 14-year-old boy, you might as well pull out his fingernails with a pair of pliers. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's just a terrible, terrible sentence upon a 14-year-old. I hated it. We all hated it. And you know what we do? This is so stupid looking back. I mean, just, just stupid. Teenagers, sometimes they act. Not all of them. We got good, but some, some teenagers. I was a stupid teenager. And we, we would go, we'd tuck our shirt in. Some teachers can remember this. And then we'd, we'd pull it out just as far as we could. 
Now, that's ignorant. You say, what's wrong with the world we live in? Those people are running it now. That's what's wrong with it. Till just the hem of that shirt would be tucked in and then we'd fold it over. And, the t- and you know, we really thought we was putting one over on them teachers because we thought, you know, they can't say nothing. Truth is, if they wanted to, they could have sent us out of school, kicked us out. I just, you know, it was private school. They could have done anything they wanted. They sat back and laughed at how stupid we all looked, but they, they could have done anything they wanted to. You know the problem? We didn't believe in the principle of it. We didn't believe in There's been churches that have been split over the particulars, not because people had a problem with the particulars, but because you had a faction of people that didn't believe in the principle. Let me tell you something. We're not to be of the world, though we have to be in the world. We're to be different. And I can sit here, I can argue particulars with you if you want me to, but let me just say this. You ever get that principle down, Pat, that we're supposed to be different, you'll cast off the works of darkness. And then what's the next thing you're going to do? Clothing yourself spiritually. You see, God isn't advocating we all run around spiritually naked. He's saying cast off the works of darkness and do what? And put on the armor of light. That's interesting language, the armor of light. Uh, There's no question, I'm sure, your mind just as mine goes immediately to the armor of God. But that's not what it says. It does not say the armor of God. It says the armor of light. But the Bible is always the best commentary on the Bible. And in fact, I was praying about where I was going to say something about this verse. And I believe the Lord had me say it right here. The Bible describes to us what the armor of light is. Look down at verse 14. He says this, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I understand if you want to fuss and argue, the armor of God can be, in a sense, putting on the armor of light and da-da-da. But I believe in the context of what Paul's saying. He's saying this, you're shedding that old man. You're consciously putting off that old man. And you're consciously putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just Jesus Christ. Not just the Nazarene. Not just the Galilean. Not just the carpenter. You're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're allowing Him to live through you and run your life. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about this because we already say a lot about it. But let me just say that the way that happens is not through striving. It happens through surrender. It does not happen through discipline. It happens through bowing the knee to Him. It does not happen through saying, Boy, I'm really going to do good. It happens through saying, Lord, I'm crucified with Christ. I, I'm, my desires, my wills, my wants, what I want out of this life means nothing. I count myself a dead man, but raised to walk in newness of life through Jesus Christ. And so my life is His, and I'll live it how He wants me to live it. He says we ought to put on the armor of light. We ought to close ourselves spiritually. But then He says we ought to consider our standing. And this is sort of a segue, for lack of a better word, in verse 13, to a few practical exhortations that he gives us. He says in verse 13, let us walk honestly as in the day. The language that Paul is using evokes the idea of considering who we are in Jesus Christ. When he says in the day, he is not necessarily trying to evoke to us that we ought to walk as we would if it was daylight around but rather recognizing that though the world be darkness around us, you and I are not of the darkness and of the night. We are children of light. And as such, we ought to live that way. Can I tell it how parents have told it throughout the ages? You ought to act like somebody. You ought to consider your standing. Consider who and what you are in Jesus Christ. 
Consider that you are no longer a child of darkness. You're no longer a child of the devil. You're no longer lost in that paganism. You're no longer without excuse. Uh, You are somebody that has been brought into the light, that lives in the day, that has the light living within you and shining forth from you. And as such, you ought to walk honestly. The word honestly uh, gives to us this truth, genuineness. Genuineness. He's not simply saying that you ought to not lie and not deceive. Of course, I think that's a given, if ever there was a given. But the word honestly, he's telling us to be genuine and sincere. Let me tell you something. People look at the people that fail and and say they're hypocrites. No, the truth is, people that fail are not hypocrites. People that don't even try are the ones that are hypocrites. Ooh, (laughs) boy, that Lord, that was a good word. (laughs) The people that try and fail are not the hypocrites. They're being who and what they are. They are a sin-fallen and yet redeemed child of God. And as such, they ought to live accordingly, and there will inevitably be times that they fail. But listen now, those that have been born again and won't even live for God, they're the hypocrites because they're living contrary to the work of the new birth that has been engendered and wrought in them through Calvary. They're the ones that are the hypocrites. What he's saying is live according to what God's done in your life. Live sincerely, live genuinely, walk honestly before this world because they're watching. I said to you that it's sort of a segue, and it is, because he gives us a few practical truths. We see a word about time and a word about warfare, but then he gives us a word about our testimony. And there is a a coupling of words here. We find six words given to us in this next few phrases, some familiar, some not so much. But they provide for us a picture of the behavior of the believer in this world. And he gives us this. He says, first off, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness. Now, you say, preacher, what is a picture of rioting? I could give you an illustration. I could talk about something that happened to someone a hundred years ago. But can I draw your attention to something we've seen in the headlines? When you turn on the TV in Baltimore and Ferguson and other major cities are on fire, that's a picture of rioting. You see, the practical use of that word is not all that different from the literal meaning of it. It has the idea of living without restraint. And the truth is, they're not burning the storefronts, they're not setting on fire the city, they're not tearing up everything because it benefits them. They're doing it because they are giving in to their feelings and emotions. They're not practicing restraint. Paul says... You ought not live that way. Rioting has the idea of lawlessness, and drunkenness has the idea of licentiousness and lasciviousness. He's talking about reveling. The picture is someone that is walking down the street like a band of drunks. If you've ever walked through any part of the major city, ever found yourself out on a weekend walking down, or maybe if you've ever gone to a football game, I promise you, you've seen folks like this, a band of people walking together. They're drunk out of their mind. They're laughing and corralling and being destructive and dangerous. That is what Paul is pointing to. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, you and I, well, not live that way. He say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. I don't go to places like that. I, I don't even drink. I don't act that way. I don't behave that way. No, 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 no. You're missing what Paul is saying. He's saying this. You ought to practice restraint in your life. Oh, now, listen now. <laughs> oh, I'll make you a deal. I'll preach on you, but I'll preach on me too, okay? Listen, ladies, when you let those emotions get the better of you, 
That's not using restraint. Men, when you let that anger get the best of you, hey, I'm guilty. That's not practicing restraint. You see, it's not about self-control. It's about spiritual control. You know, you know, ladies, that emotions are not a bad thing. You wouldn't believe this, but God has created you with emotions. You wouldn't believe this, but God is emotional in a sense. But, you know, we ought to just make up our minds that nothing's going to run you and I but the Spirit of God. Not wrong to have emotions. Emotions can even glorify God. But at the end of the day, it ought to be the Spirit of God that's in control. Hey, men, guess what? Anger in and of itself is not a sin. Frustration is not a sin. The Bible says to be angry and sin not. But guess what? We ought to make up our minds that though we may be angry and sin not, we're going to be ang- not going to be angry and sin. We need to make up our minds that we're not going to let it govern us. We're not going to let it run us. Because let me tell you something. If anything is in control other than the Spirit of God, that means the Spirit of God is not in control. It says, you and I, we ought to be practicing restraint. But then I want you to notice he says not only practicing restraint, but look at the next phrase. He says not in chambering and wantonness. Now, men, uh, when it says chambering, it's not talking about putting around in the cylinder. Somebody say amen. What he's talking about here, that word chambering, denotes the idea of the marriage bed. But sometimes it is used positively about the marriage bed. Sometimes it is used about the marriage bed when it's not really a marriage bed. Can I use a phrase that we use in everyday language, and I hope it's not offensive to you, but we might call it shacking up. You ever heard that term before? What he is saying is this. He's talking about chambering and wantonness. Wantonness has the idea of lurid, lustful, and physical desires. And he's saying this. First off, he says on the inward there ought to be some restraint. We ought to be practicing restraint. But then he says we ought to be projecting righteousness. We ought to be living in a way that people can look at our lives and see that there's something different about us. You know, there's been a lot of debate and dispute about the things, the decisions that the government has made over the past few months. And, you know, it grieves me like it grieves everybody that has any, any bit of God about them whatsoever. I mean, nobody could be happy with the decisions that have been made. But let me tell you something. With the divorce rate skyrocketing in this country, I'm not sure we believe so much in the sanctity of marriage in the first place. Ooh. Listen, I know divorce happens. I don't believe the Lord hates you if you get divorced, and I sure don't. But I'm saying this, marriage was broke before the Supreme Court ever broke it. We, even as believers, have cheapened the institution. Oftentimes, through making decisions and following gut instincts and things of that sort. And we have let the world down. At least, I, and I'm not talking, if you haven't had a marriage that fell, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about by not living like believers in a world of unbelievers, by not projecting righteousness. That is the, the undercurrent of truth that Paul is giving in this passage. He's not just fussing about sexual sins of the bedroom. What he is saying is this, that we ought to be living in a way that people can see there's something different about us. He talks about practicing restraint, and he talks about projecting righteousness. But then, as we close, he says a word about protecting relationships. He says this, 
Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. But then he says, not in strife and envying. It's interesting that Paul brings the camera's focus keenly upon the point of contact that believers have with this lost world. You say, what is that point of contact that we have with the lost world, preacher? It's in relationships. Relationships. You work with people. If you still work, you work with people. You have neighbors. You have friends. You have acquaintances. And those relationships are places where you and I can have an impact. Paul says that as believers, we ought to be peacemakers. Now listen now, not peacekeepers. We ought to be peacemakers. You might be able to keep peace through compromise, but you can only make peace through love, through sacrifice, through compassion. What Paul is saying is this, in the way that we interact one with another, there ought to be no strife. Can I give you a a word that might make that a little more vivid for you? Friction. Friction. That's what strife is. In fact, sometimes we'll even use the word friction in that context. The idea of two things that are contrary to one another coming into contact, creating heat, creating spark, creating fire, creating some sort of unpleasant situation. Paul is not saying as believers we ought to just keep our mouth shut. He's not saying that as believers we ought to uh, just uh, keep quiet, never take a stand, never upset anyone. But what he is saying is this. Can I tell you what James said? James said, Be not many masters, seeing ye yourselves shall receive the greater condemnation. He said this, that we are already masters in many things. Let me tell you something. The gospel is an uncomfortable thing to a lost person. Do you know that? It's an uncomfortable thing. And you know what ought to be our response in that respect? We ought to, like Paul exhorted Timothy, we ought to adorn the gospel. Let me tell you something. Just standing and telling someone the truth of Jesus Christ is an offensive thing. So we ought not be many masters and go out of our way to offend them beyond those things. We spend a lot of time trying to make Baptists out of lost people. And you know the sad thing? We're achieving it. (laughs) Did you know this? That a person can be a Baptist and still die and go to hell? I'm not saying those things are not important. I'm not saying there's not a place where those things must be learned and applied and absorbed into the life of a person once they've been saved. Oh, they're of utmost importance. But I'm saying this, the main thing is still the main thing. And the reason a person dies and goes to hell is because they've rejected Christ. Not because they don't line up with some pet doctrine of yours or mine. And we spend a lot of time having theological arguments with spiritually dead people and we get nowhere doing it. Why not live with strife? All the time. The truth is offensive. You'll become people's enemy just by telling them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't make them an enemy out of some minuscule thing, but adorn the gospel in the proper way. And then he says, envying. Envying. Boy, if there was ever a timely word for the church today. We live in a day where we envy the world. Let me tell you something. Some people live like these church walls are prison bars. Some people live like this Bible that's set in front of us is nothing but a law book and a rule book. I understand there's lots of law in this Bible, but I'm understanding too that we've been made free through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's lots of folks, man. I mean, 
You can t- they, they walk around with a long face all day. Got to watch how I behave. Got to live like a Christian. Can't do this. Can't do that. Ain't no wonder you're miserable. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're not walking in the power of the new life. You're not living in the joy of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the sweet communion and fellowship that we have with Him. Let me tell you something. There's nothing. Listen close to what I'm about to say. There's nothing the world can give you that's even an ounce better than the worst that God could give you. Let me tell you something. There's nothing they have that I want. I've got everything in Jesus Christ. Shame on me for envying the condemnation of the world when I have deliverance through Jesus Christ. There's nothing they have that I want. I've got more in Him than I could ever ask for. And we ought to live satisfied and sanctified and joyous in this world that we live in. I think, listen, I think we'd see more people be saved if we wore smiles. Hey, laugh if you want. But there's a lot of folks don't want to come into a church house because it feels like a funeral home. Guess what? Come Tuesday, we're going to take this church house, make it a funeral home, then turn it into a church house again at the same time. We've got something to rejoice about. I think we'd see more people saved if people had the joy of the Lord in their life, walked rejoicing in the goodness of God and what He's done for them. I'm saying this, don't envy what the world's got. You've got something far better. Just brag on the Lord a little more. Hey, call it simplistic if you want. But I probably wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for some folks bragging on the Lord and what He had done in their life. Let me tell you something. As a ten-year-old boy, he looked awful good to me. As a ten-year-old, he looked awful. Somebody, you're here today because somebody bragged on the Lord. You're not here because somebody told you how awful the Christian life is. You're here because somebody told you how good Jesus Christ is. So let's not belittle it. Let's not mock it. Let's not make small things bad. Every time somebody got saved in the New Testament and started rejoicing, there was always a crowd that criticized. I don't want to be in that crowd. I don't want to live envying what the world has and walk around with a cynical and sad and sour spirit all the time. Man, I want to rejoice in what God's done in, in my life and in the life of others. I'm saying this. Jesus is coming soon. <laughs> Let's put a smile on. Let's live for Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we shouldn't be broken over our sin. I'm not saying we shouldn't be burdened for the lost. But I'm saying this, that a burden does not rob us of our joy. Rather, it intensifies and focuses our passion upon what God has done in our life and can do in the lives of others.